want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the passage printed in the bulletin. Uh, we are now going to slow down a little bit in this series on Isaiah. We kind of sped through uh, chapters 1 through 39. And now we're going to slow down a little bit and take a look at these last uh, 30 or so, you know, 30 or so chapters, 26 chapters, uh, because these chapters focus on salvation, the great themes of the Bible. What does it mean to be saved? Why do we need to be saved? How does God save people? Uh, and you may say, well, I've already heard this message. Have you heard it from Isaiah lately? Because he tells it pretty good, I'm going to tell you. And let's begin today by reading. This, this passage, you'll notice, begins with two words, comfort, 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 comfort. And so let's hear that message today. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He, sends his, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is God's word, and truly, it endures forever, doesn't it? It's amazing, uh, right at the very beginning of the passage, comfort, comfort. We've already talked about how when the Bible doubles up words or triples up words, it's because it wants to show just how deep... Uh, the concept is that it's trying to teach us. And here the, the idea of comfort is more than just feeling you know, at ease. This is a comfort comfort. This is a deep, true and lasting comfort that God is expressing to Isaiah. But there's more to it than that. Uh, have you ever noticed how when you're really excited about something, you can't help but tell it to somebody else? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, you, you can't just get excited and not share it. Uh, I, have, I had written down that I was going to tell you about my excitement in FSU football, but I'm going to skip that this morning because last week I was excited in FSU football, this week uh, not quite as much because of the, the tragic events of last night. But you can think of your own thing. What is it in your life that you just run to people to share? Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your hobby, maybe it's your friends. I don't know what it is. One of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, in fact, he, he wrote this. He said, joy is incomplete when you have that joy but don't share it. You, you can't, it doesn't even full joy. 
Uh, there's just something about saying, hey, don't you see how good this is too? And to have that person say back, oh yeah, it is truly good, you're right, that just explodes the joy. Well, there's something like that going on here in chapter 40. God says to Isaiah, not just comfort, comfort, but he says, comfort my people. He doesn't just give Isaiah personally a message of salvation, which he does, but he gives it to Isaiah so that Isaiah could become a voice and a messenger of that good news to everybody else. And then we're going to see he gives it to everybody else so that they too, the everybody else, could also become carriers of that same message of comfort and good news. This is the way it works. Uh, this morning, we are not prophets in the way Isaiah was, perhaps. But we have a prophetic ministry as Christians, don't we? We're, we're anointed uh, you know, in Jesus' anointing. Uh, and Jesus, of course, was the greatest prophet. More than a prophet, in fact. He was the very word himself. And when we come to believe in Jesus, there's a message laid on us in a good way that we just can't simply, we should not simply try to keep to ourselves, just for us. we got to go tell it, right? Uh, let, me, let me read you this uh, sentence or two about the passage. And I, I just think that it summarizes what we want to talk about today. This is from a man named Edward Young. He says, The voice in this passage, Isaiah 40, the voice that's described three times, is not the voice of God, because the voice itself is talking about God. It's not a voice of, any, of uh, angels or of any member of the heavenly court. It's a human voice, a messenger, a human messenger declaring God's commands. Here's what he, this is the conclusion he draws from that. It is the duty of the church, capital C, us, the people of God, to declare the whole counsel of God and wherever God comes to his people, it is Zion and Jerusalem that must proclaim that fact. It's a message worthy of the most dignified proclamation, and its proclamation lies in the hands of the church. This morning, y'all, I want to remind us we got a mission because we got a message, and because we got a very, very good master of that message. And so take a look at your bulletin. There are three things from the passage that I want to point out to you. First of all, we're going to see the message itself. Uh, what is it that Isaiah is supposed to tell? What are we supposed to tell? Uh, secondly, what kinds of messengers are supposed to carry the message? We're going to look at the messenger. And then lastly, we're going to look at the master, uh, the one about whom the message is, right? So the message, the messenger, and the master. First of all, the, the message. Uh, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. But then verse 2, uh, Isaiah is given a three-part uh, summary of what that message entails, where the comfort is going to come from. Uh, and it's important before we dig into that to just briefly get a little bit of historical background. Uh, so please don't tune me out here. This is going to be very short, uh, but it's very important. Isaiah in this passage and in the rest of the book is looking ahead to future events, which is one of the things prophets did. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a misconception, actually, that that's all that prophets did, that they only like sort of like Nostradamus just sort of foretold future things. But they did more than that. But they did, in fact, do that. And Isaiah is looking ahead to a time when Israel is going to be facing their worst disaster in history. It's called the exile. It's usually spelled with a capital E. It's the exile. When the Babylonian army came and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem and carried away all the Israelites who were left alive to 
Babylon, many miles away, to live for over 70 years. It's called the exile. Isaiah is talking about that. And, and he is addressing a generation yet to come about the comfort that God's going to bring even to an exiled people. Now, think about that in your head. Because what he goes on to say in verse 2 is not maybe what you would think you would need to say to an exiled people to bring them comfort. I would think, okay, if I'm going to be exiled and, and destroyed in a battle, I would want to hear about reinforcements, ammunition, better strategy, a change of uh, regime among the generals who lost the first war. I mean, that's what I would be thinking, you know, economic stimulus. Uh, things like that, you know, that would kind of help bring the nation back to a good political footing. But notice what he says, verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her, first of all, her hard service has been completed. Second of all, her sin has been paid for. And third of all, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And right there you've got a great little three-point summary of the gospel the good news that the Bible from beginning to end teaches you. Notice that it is not unconcerned with tangible physical circumstances like political disaster and warfare and things like that, but that's not its primary concern. The primary concern of the gospel is to get to what really is, at the very heart of it, the true problem with humanity, people like me and you. That true problem, according to the passage here, is that we are engaged in hard service that we need to be set free from. Uh, in other words, some translations say their warfare is ended. Uh, a better way to translate it might be their tour of duty is over. Their tour of duty is over. In other words, God wanted Israel to know you're going into exile not because you're just simply bad at war. You're going into exile because you're a sinner. God made a covenant with you, Israel, a special covenant relationship that engaged you into a life of faithfulness with God because of his mercy and grace. And you returned back to God nothing but spite and disobedience and hatred. And so the exile is actually the slavery that's going to come to you because of your sin. And don't you know that even if we don't get physically exiled, doesn't sin enslave every single time? It's important to remember that. You might, not, you might be here and you don't believe that. You might not even believe in the concept of sin. But isn't it true that sometimes, even if you don't believe in the concept of sin, don't you feel bound by things sometimes in your life? Like you just can't get out? You just can't, there's just no way that you can free yourself from your tour of duty through life? First of all, doesn't life sometimes feel like a tour of duty? <laughs> How do you explain that? How do you explain it? You can just explain that on a circumstantial level, and that's, that's fine. But the Bible offers you, Jesus, the gospel offers you something that I think is a far more profound answer. It says, you and I have a quarrel with our maker, and our maker has a quarrel with us. He's got beef with us. And the reason why we experience life as a tour of duty the reason why we get into bad habits and can't break them, the reason why we get into addictions and can't break them, the reason why we destroy relationships and can't stop destroying them is because we are not in a right position with God himself. And God has made sin to be its own punishment. The misery of sin follows it as its own punishment. 
And yet God says to Israel, even Israel, who would go into exile, I am going to bring you freedom. True freedom. There's going to come a day when your hard service, your tour of duty is actually going to be over. The second thing he says is your sins will be paid for or forgiven. That's the second part of the gospel. It's not just freedom, but it's forgiveness. And here, uh, I love the, the word that he selects uh, in verse 2, the word that's translated has been completed, or excuse me, has been paid for. That word is used basically only in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, except for here. And, uh, you know, I was the crazy guy that decided to teach Leviticus through the summer uh, at our night service. But I hope that it maybe got across to you some very important thing, that God doesn't just forgive without bearing a cost. It, it ain't cheap to love me for God. <laughs> and it's not cheap for God to love you uh, because of the problem of sin. Uh, you know this is true in your own life, too. Anytime you've ever had to forgive someone who wronged you, it cost you something, didn't it? It hurt. You had to let go of something that you didn't want to let go of. You had to swallow a bitterness that affected you rather than spitting that bitterness out like venom against them. Isn't that, isn't that true? Well, God, he had a very special kind of bitterness to swallow. In fact, Jesus said he drank a whole cup of bitterness when he died on the cross. He drank the entire cup of God's punishment, of God's judgment against sinners like me, all the way down to the very bottom of the cup, so that our sin would be paid for forever. In other words, sins are paid for because God offers a sacrifice. And so Isaiah is to tell Israel, Israel, good news, gospel, here's, here's the gospel. Not only is your tour of duty going to be ended, but all the sins that got you there in the first place are going to be completely wiped out, paid for. The third thing he says is that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What do you think that means? Well, it has to do with the fact that not only have sins been forgiven, but also to add to that, there is no more judgment that's going to come from the hand of God to you ever again. So, you know, think about this. Imagine we had been, you know, Israel had been set free from their hard service because of their sin. Imagine God had forgiven them, but he had only forgiven them for their past sins. And now it was up to them to kind of make the most of the future. And as long as they stayed perfectly on the straight and narrow, God would not punish them. But if they got off the straight and narrow, he's going to come right back with punishment and bitterness. Would that be good news? Is it good news for you for me to stand up here today and say that Jesus will forgive you of everything you've done up to now, but then now you, he's going to pass the baton off to you to go finish life strong for him and make your, make, make your way to heaven? No, that's not good news at all because I know my own heart. I know my own track record with the Lord, and you probably know yours. You won't make it very far. And yet here it says... Israel has received already the fullness, that's what double means, the fullness of all that, that I owed to them because of all of their sins. Paul says it very well in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's what it's talking about here. Not only do we have freedom in the gospel, not only do we have forgiveness of sins, but we've got acceptance with God that can never be taken away. We all need to hear this very often in our lives. If we're Christians, we can know no matter what it is God is doing in our circumstances, it's not punishment. 
Did you hear that? That's, that's big. I don't, maybe you didn't hear it because I didn't see a nod. I didn't hear a bunch of amens because it should come out, right? The fact that when you go through bad things as a Christian, it might be discipline. It very, it very well may be that God's teaching you some very hard lessons. But one thing it is not is punishment, judgment, or condemnation. Why? You have already received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins in Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, all the judgment got exhausted so that there is no condemnation anymore. Isn't that amazing? This is the message that Isaiah was supposed to declare to Israel. It wasn't what they may have thought that they needed, but it was exactly, in fact, what they needed. And the same thing is true this morning. Oftentimes we come to Jesus for quick fixes. We come to Jesus to get you know, our circumstances better. We think that if we do the religious thing that God will bless us instead of sending hard things our way. But, it, but I hope that you don't come to this church very long before you hear that that's not the only reason you should come to Jesus. I hope that you hear this morning that coming to Jesus for those things is just simply actually not coming to Jesus at all. That actually coming to Jesus, the message of the gospel, is an invitation to find yourself completely hidden in him so that all his blessings become yours and that all your bitterness, cursing, Sin, misery becomes his on the cross. It's a big deal. Uh, this, this, in other words, this message of the gospel is not just merely like a math lesson. Not, no offense to math lessons. Uh, we have some math teachers in the house, but it's not a math lesson. It's not like, hey, learn the gospel so that you can you know, pass the Sunday school test or whatever. It's not that. I mean, it's got to be more than that. In fact, I think this passage reminds us that the gospel is nothing less than a marriage proposal, which is very different than a math lesson. It's different in its strategy. It's different in its goals. He says there in verse 2, uh, to prove this, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The gospel is to be spoken tenderly. I, I, love, the, I love that word because, and I don't know why no one translates it this way, but none of the translations, King James or none of them, translate it this way, but it actually says, lay on the heart of Jerusalem this message. Lay it on their hearts. In other words, a math lesson or something like that is to be laid on the mind so that you can regurgitate the information or learn a certain skill. A marriage proposal is something you're trying to lay on the heart <laughs> so that the person might actually be persuaded to give all their lives to the one who's making the proposal. Speak it tenderly. Lay it on the heart of Jerusalem. And y'all, that is what the gospel is. It's a message meant to persuade. The Christian church has a mission to, make, to see that more people become Christians, not because we have some kind of inferiority complex and want larger numbers to make ourselves feel better. I should, at least that should not be the reason. Sometimes we do fall into that. It's also not because we're just so excited to tell everybody that I'm right, you're wrong, and I can't wait to tell you about it. That's also not the reason why we share the gospel. Why do we share the gospel? Because the gospel in itself is a persuasive message. And it came to us persuasively. It came and said, look at your life without Christ. You were in bondage. You were laid down by guilt. You did not have acceptance with God. All you had was condemnation. You were afraid of death. You were afraid of hell. And look at what Jesus offered. Look at what Jesus gave you. 
If our hearts are persuaded, if this message has been laid on our hearts, man, don't we want it to be laid on the hearts of other people? So how well do you know the gospel message this morning? How well has it been laid on your heart? And how much zeal do you feel in your heart, do we feel in our hearts as a church, to see that same message laid on the hearts of people in our community? I pray that it's growing all the time. That sense of, oh Lord, persuade. Persuade our neighbors, persuade our friends, persuade our family members. That's the first thing. Secondly, the messenger. Uh, because we have had the message laid on us, we become a messenger. And, and notice there, I want to point out three different verses. Verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9. Those three times Isaiah describes what he calls a voice. A voice. It's a poetic way of talking about himself and of talking about Israel as a whole. In fact, uh, verse 3 was quoted in, in almost all the Gospels, three of the four Gospels, maybe even four of the four. I can't remember if it was in John or not. But it's quoted in at least three of the four about John the Baptist. So this is a description of all the messengers of God. It says in verse 3, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In verse 6, a voice cries out, a voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And then verse 9, you who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout and say to Israel, here is your God. Three, three, uh, it's actually one voice described in three ways to help us understand that God doesn't just simply care that his message gets out. He cares that his messengers are the type of people who would get it out. Think about that. That's what this is talking about. Because each one of those sections, verse 3 through 5, verse 6 through 8, verse 9 through 11, is describing the kind of voice that God is sending out. Uh, you may not be old enough to remember this. I'm barely old enough to remember it, but... There were some commercials on TV like in the late 80s, early 90s about the hair club for men. You remember those? And at the time, they didn't appeal to me, but to today, you know, they find a soft spot in my heart. But these commercials got famous even though they were really bad. I mean, I actually went back and looked at one on, on YouTube this week to remind myself, and it was like the most low budget. It was just this guy standing in front of the... The, the camera holding up this lame like packet saying, you can be a part of the hair club for men. And if you join today, we'll send you a subscription to this magazine about male grooming or, you know, something very just non-persuasive, except for the fact that he had the most glorious head of hair. He did. It was just beautiful, like dark and it just billowy, the perfect male head of hair. And at the very end of the commercial, he always dramatically picked up this big photo of himself, bald, and he pointed at it and says, I'm not just the president of the Hair Club for Men, I'm also a client. And then it just ended, right? That was the commercial. That's a silly example of something that is extremely true. Think about it. The only effective messenger of a product truly, is someone who believes in the product. And usually you only believe in the product because you have yourself been, as he said, a client of the product, right? 
Uh, we all know the difference between that commercial, for example, and the ones that just have paid actors who probably don't have anything to do with the actual product. God wants his church not to just be merely a group of paid actors. Hmm? Uh, we're not paid actors. We're clients. More than clients. We're sons and daughters, right? Who have received the glorious news of those three things we talked about in verse 2. We've already received that in ourselves. And it's beginning to shape who we are so that when we carry the message out in the world our lives, in some small measure, actually resonate with the message we're telling. Like picking up that picture. This is what I was. This is what I am. This is what Jesus can do for a person like you. Look, and I'll just give you three quick things. Uh, first of all, in verse 3, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In other words, this voice is a repentant voice. It's a voice that's announcing repentance, and in order to announce repentance without it being uh, just simply judgmental, you have to yourself be a repentant person, right? You say, well, I don't even know what repentance is. Repentance is simply this, turning away from life your way and embracing life God's way. That's repentance. Now, if you go around all the time, this is what people often think about Christians who share their faith, is you go around saying, you need to repent, you know, you need to... Get your life right with God. But it looks more like this, right? Than it does like coming alongside and, man, I've had a tour of duty as well that Jesus saved me from. I had a load of sins as heavy as a ton, and Jesus lifted them off. Let me come alongside you and encourage you towards the beauty of repentance. That's different than just simply, you know, all y'all bad people. You know, who are not as good as we are. In order to be a credible messenger, in order to be more than just a president but a client, you got to yourself have a life of repentance. That's why he says you got to prepare the way of the Lord in the desert. In the desert. You see, the gospel reveals that sin turns life into a wilderness. And the only way for God to get into the various parts of our lives is through the mechanism of repentance, which he himself works into us. He helps us repent, which then clears the way like building a highway for him to get into different parts of our hearts and lives. That's what the picture is. One of my friends, a dear friend, went to Uganda a couple different times on, on missions trips. And uh, one time uh, they, they were traveling. He, he told me how many kilometers it was. I don't remember. I don't even know kilometers. But uh, however, it was very short distance. But they were going on these rough, like, desert roads, and it was potholes everywhere. And so it took four hours to drive this relatively short distance. And it was a painful ride. But then the second time he went, he took that same journey, and this time they got on this beautiful highway, like, wide, perfectly smooth, asphalt, all the way there, all the way back. I mean, just beautiful, like, a, like an American interstate. And my friend asked the, the Ugandan man, I mean, where was this road, <laughs> you know, last time I came a couple years ago? And he said, well, we just built it. It's the Queen's Highway. We built it because the Queen of England is coming for a visit to Uganda because it's one of the Commonwealth nations. And we didn't want her to have to ride on pothole roads. <laughs> So we went through the desert with a highway for the queen. And they still call it apparently the queen's highway. That's the picture. That's the picture. 
We don't want God, when he comes to our lives, we don't want him coming through a pothole road. And the call of Jesus is that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, he begins to clear the way. We begin to do things as well that, by God's grace, that clear the way for God to come in, to make a highway. Do you see? If we're going to call people to that kind of radical life change, which is what every time we open our mouth and share Jesus, that's what we're doing, if we're doing it right, <laughs> we have to ourselves understand that kind of radical life change. Lord, open wide the gates. Make a highway. Come into my life. Enter those places of my life that I don't at first want you to enter. <laughs> the places that make me uncomfortable. Enter anyway. The second thing he says there, verse 6, is a voice says, cry out. What shall I cry? All people are like grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. In other words, you've got to be a humble messenger. A repentant messenger and a humble messenger. Uh, we can't, the, the gospel is not, hey, look at us, the church, and see what you can be because we are us. And you, don't you want to be us? The message is all people are like grass. So I relate to you 100% because I'm grass and you're grass. And when the breath of the Lord blows, I wither and you wither. The stuff I do fades and the stuff you do fades. The things I've attempted to do apart from God have led me the wrong way and they've led you the wrong way. But here's the good news. The word of God endures forever. Messengers of this message have to themselves be humbled before the enduring character of God's word and cured of their self-confidence and their own withering flowers and fading grasses of their own pride and their own lives. Last one there in verse 9. Uh, you who bring good news, go up on a high mountain. Bring good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and don't be afraid. In other words, we've got to be bold. The messengers of the gospel are repentant, they're humble, and they're bold. You say, why are they bold? Look at what it says. Verse 9. Lift it up, don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Why are messengers of the gospel bold? Because they know that they're proclaiming the message of a powerful God who can't be stopped. A powerful God whose grace is sufficient, whose grace is conquering, whose grace is amazingly good. I mean, it's one thing for me to point, to share a message about myself. Because when I do that, and I happen to be doing well, it's like my thing about not wanting to mention FSU. Uh, when FSU is good, I want to mention them. When they're not, I just want you not to talk about it, right? I don't want to talk about it. Well, if the gospel becomes about me, when I'm having a good day, I'm like, man, Jesus is great. I think you should follow Jesus because, man, he's making my life. I'm hitting home runs every day. You know, every day is a Friday, right? <laughs> it's just wonderful. But when I'm not hitting home runs, I lose confidence in the gospel if I think that's what the gospel is. But here it says the gospel is about not pointing to yourself, but pointing to him. So that even on days when I'm fading like grass in the noonday sun, I can still say, behold your God. I can still say, man, I need this message just as much as you do. Listen to what God has done through his son, Jesus. I wonder, where, where are you struggling in your life to adorn the gospel today? To, to share it and to show it? I think all of us can probably think of an area. 
Is it at home? Is it at work? Is it at school? Some place where you just can't get over the hump. You can't, you can't get over it. Uh, is it a repentance problem? Maybe. Are, are you not clearing the way yourself for the Lord? So it's hard for you to really tell people about clearing the way for God? Uh, is it a humility issue? Is it a boldness issue? We don't have time to you know, address each of those this morning, but I'll, I'll leave that as your afternoon's mission today. <laughs> To go through those verses again and think, if I have a humility issue, let me meditate on those verses in, in 6 through 8. If I have a repentance issue, 3 through 5. If I've got a boldness issue, let me think about 9 through 11. Just soak up the goodness of God. Now lastly today, I want to show you the master. Because there, after it says, behold your God, or here is your God in verse 9, in verses 10 and 11, he gives the most awesome portrait of God which really we know is, is a portrait of Jesus. We believe uh, here at Greater Hope, as Christians have believed from the beginning, that Jesus Christ is God. Nothing less than God. God who came into the world and became a human being to deliver the salvation to everybody who believes that is described in verse 2. Verse 10 and 11, therefore, describe Jesus to a T in his ministry as he lived in this life. Look at what it says, verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his, his reward is with him. He rules with a mighty arm. And don't we see that about Jesus? Uh, like, like we read this morning in the New Testament lesson, Jesus comes with a whip and just whoosh, takes people out of the temple and turns over tables and says, stop abusing my father's house. And aren't there times when he says, peace be still, and the storm is stilled, and he tells a demon to run off, and the demon runs off. And there are times where the, the, the glory of Jesus as God is displayed in perfection in his life. Clearly, when you look at Jesus, you see that God has come to rule with a mighty arm. But there are also times, look at verse 11, where Jesus comes like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He leads gently those that, are, that have young. There were times also where Jesus not only built a whip to whip people out of God's house, but he drew people into God's house. He, he met with a sinful woman in Samaria at the well and promised her everlasting life. He, he called a tax collector and went and had dinner at his house. And, and, and a tax collector was worse than they are today, right? I mean... A lot worse, more on the level of mafia than what we think of as a tax collector today. And Jesus met with the mafia boss and called him as Matthew, the one who wrote Matthew's gospel. Jesus came calling the children to himself, even children, babies, he called to himself and took babies in his arms and says, the kingdom of God belongs to babies. In other words, in Jesus Christ, we see who God is perfectly. He's powerful beyond belief, beyond our imagination. And he's also tender and gentle beyond imagination. <laughs> he's far away from us. We, we are way out of our depth when, we, when we're thinking about God. We, we are totally out of our depth with God. And yet God is near. So near that sometimes he communicates in his word to us in a gentle whisper straight to the heart. You say, well, what does all this mean? 
It means the gospel message finds its power not even in the message itself or in the messenger. It finds its power in the one who is proclaimed in the message. God. A God who's both able to rule and also able to embrace. Do you notice that? He has, he, has one, he has two arms, but it describes one arm in two ways, you know? Verse 11, uh, the arm that, or excuse me, verse 10, the arm that rules, which then becomes in verse 11, the arm that gathers and holds close to the heart a little tiny scared lamb. Don't you want God to be that way for you? Well, the gospel says... God is that way. He's actually that way whether we want him to be or not. This is just the way God is. And if we turn from life our way and, and embrace God by his grace, he becomes this way for us from here on to the very end of eternity. This God who both rules and gathers at the same time with the same arm. Amazing, isn't it? I think this helps us to share our faith, actually. Because again, we're going around saying, verse 9, here's your God, not here's me. But it also helps in this way. Sometimes when we share our faith, we are all truth and no grace. Right? Have you ever experienced that from a Christian? Or maybe you've dealt that. I know I've dealt it and experienced it, right? All truth, no grace. Get your act together, but man, it makes you feel terrible. I know I've done it. I mean, we've all done it. Sometimes we suffer from the other problem, all grace, no truth. And it's like a pretended grace where we're like, oh, yes, you know, there's every, every way to God. Anybody can come to God in any way they want. God, God just, you know, loves in his general sort of vague way the whole world, right? Kumbaya. But it never gets around to, no, actually God has things he loves and things he hates. God has, like, preferences. <laughs> uh, he's not just sort of going with the flow, that everybody else chooses for him, right? I think Jesus Christ, more than anyone, in fact, no one else has ever done this, perfectly marries grace and truth in all that he does in our lives. And because he perfectly marries grace and truth, a ruling arm and an arm to hold you close to his heart, he can be the only one who school us all, to apprentice us all in the art of grace and truth. And so the way we as a church become spokesmen for Jesus is we've got to get with Jesus. We've got to be with him often. We've got to listen often. We've got to embrace in our heart the message that he's given, both in his grace and in his truth. If you find yourself trying to mute one and turn up the other, resist it. With Jesus, you don't have to mute truth to get grace. In fact, it's the truth that drives you to grace. And it's his grace which drives you back to truth and it, give, it takes away all your reasons for having to deny the truth because you're secure in grace. It's an amazing thing. Here's another way to say it. It's maybe a more memorable way to say it. The gospel will be on our hearts when we know that we are on Jesus' heart. And that's what it says there in verse 11. The God who rules all things, who judges all men one day, He'll judge every person, man, woman, boy, and girl. In Christ is the God who carries you close to his heart. Do you know you're laid on Jesus' heart? <laughs> if we know that, I mean, I think this is what transformed Isaiah's life all those years ago, and I think it can transform ours. You're laid on his heart. Therefore, 
his message is laid on your heart. And oh, to have that message laid on others' hearts. Oh, to have them know that they are laid on the heart of Jesus. Jesus.